Now, I all want you to imagine that right now, you're all in heaven, and you're watching the gatekeeper of heaven see this old man rise up from the earth and walk slowly to the gates of heaven, because he's just died. The gatekeeper asks the man, So, welcome to the heavens. What's your name? Oh, my name? said the man, Xuan Ye. Okay then, Xuan Ye, how did you die? Oh, mate, uh, I got sick. Oh, okay. Um, so what, what did you do down at Earth? Oh, I was the Emperor of China. The gatekeeper is slightly surprised. Oh, the Emperor of China, okay. Well, what sort of things did you do? The old man is very calm and a little bit nonchalant. And he replies in a very deadpan voice. Um, well, I conquered all of China. I uh, conquered Tibet for the first time ever. I defeated the Russians. I defeated the Mongolians. I created a Chinese dictionary. I patroned the arts. And I gave my empire peace and prosperity for years to... Okay, okay, okay. Alright, alright, old man. Just, we get it. You seem like a top bloke. G'day everyone, I'm your host Stephen, and welcome to another episode of the Bamboo History Podcast. For those of you who are new, the Bamboo History Podcast is a podcast about Chinese and East Asian history. If you like this type of content, please subscribe to my podcast and follow my Instagram as well, at Bamboo History Podcast. Today we're going to talk about China's longest reigning emperor that has been recorded, the Kangxi Emperor. Kangxi spelt K-A-N-G-X-I. Who was the Kangxi Emperor? What was he like? What was his favourite food? Well, no fear, because you're all going to find out in this two-part series about the Kangxi Emperor. So without further ado, let's get straight into it. Kangxi ruled China for 61 years from the years 1661 to 1722, and that makes him the longest ever Chinese ruler recorded. This doesn't include all those legendary emperors back in the day in prehistory that can't be verified, so Kangxi is recorded as the longest ruler of China. In fact, amongst rulers of the entire world, he's ranked 12th in terms of the longest reign. He ruled China during the Qing Dynasty, the name Kangxi is actually his era name. For those of you who don't know what an era name is, an era name, or Nianhao in Chinese, is a title given by Chinese emperors to identify and number a year. So for example, whilst we may identify a year as 1662, it would have been referred in China at the time as the second year of Kangxi. Kangxi's actual name was Ai Xin Jue Luo Xuan Ye, with Ai Xin Jue Luo being his surname. Ai Xin Jue Luo spelt A I S I N G O R O, and Xuan Ye is his given name, X U A N Y E. Now, you might be thinking, Ai Xin Jue Luo, it's a really strange Chinese surname, right? That's right, because his surname is actually of Manchu origin. Manchu spelt M A N C H U. For those of you who don't know, who the Manchu are, 
The Manchu people are an ethnic minority in China, and their native land is in the northeast of China. Kangxi ruled during the Qing Dynasty, Qing spelled Q-I-N-G, and the Qing Dynasty was a period in China between the 17th and the early 20th centuries where China was actually ruled by the Manchu people and not by the majority Han Chinese people. So yeah, during that time, China was ruled by an ethnic minority. So that sort of leads into the context of which uh, Kangxi was born and grew up in and ruled. So we have to imagine, this is the year 1654. Kangxi has just been born. He is a prince. His father is the Shunzhi Emperor. Prior to the Qing Dynasty, China had been ruled by the Han Chinese, the Han Chinese being the majority ethnic group in China. The Han Chinese had ruled China themselves under the Ming Dynasty until the year 1644, when the Ming Dynasty collapsed from internal rebellions, natural disasters, and a whole whole list of other things, which I'll get to in another episode. But amidst these conflicts, the Manchus rode in from northeast China and took over the entire country. So, you can imagine not many years have passed since the transition was made between the Ming and the Qing dynasties. And, in fact, there was still a lot of conflict going on at the time, and China still wasn't entirely stable at that point. So when Kangxi came to the throne in the year 1661, the Qing dynasty was still in its infancy. It hadn't fully unified China yet. There were still pockets of rebellions and Ming dynasty loyalists still running about. And you have to think, he ascended the throne when he was only seven years old. Seven years old. Think about what you were doing at seven. I'll tell you what I was doing at seven. I was playing handball at school. As a seven-year-old, Kangxi obviously was too young and immature to rule an entire country. So, Kangxi's grandma appointed four regents to help the young emperor rule the country. The four regents were Sonan, not Sony. Spelt S O N I N, Ebilun, E B I L U N, Suksaha, S U K S A H A, and Oboi, O B O I. So these four regents, who were a lot older than Kangxi and were, you know, would help the Kangxi emperor rule until he came of age at 16, which was the age where you'd become an adult back in those days. And then afterwards, Kangxi would rule himself. That was the idea. But how were these four regents, right? I mean, you have four powerful older men taking care of a young emperor who's seven years old. I mean, surely, surely none of them are going to think about, you know, manipulating a young child and taking over themselves, right? Surely not. Well, out of those four regents, Sony, sorry, I meant Sonan, Sonan was probably the best one out of them. He took care of Kangxi and was really invested in his development. But Sonan was really old by the time he was Kangxi's regent, and he died really early in the year 1667, when Kangxi was only 13. Suksaha was the second-ranked regent of the four. But he was from a different faction from the other three regents, and it was sort of like a him versus the other three, In you know what I mean, in terms of everything. The other three weren't too, weren't a huge fan of him, and his presence would always create tension. That left the other two regents, Ebilun and Oboi, who were the most ambitious of the regents and 
would actually be the ones who would be a real threat to the Emperor. But they were initially kept in check by Sony, I mean Sonen, at the beginning. But as Sonen began to age, they started to have plans of their own. And when Sonen died, they leapt into action. Especially, oh boy, who gradually expanded his power to try and control the entire court with the mind of eventually taking over the Emperor and the country. So Oboif made his move after Sonan died. He first had Suksaha executed. Suksaha was that guy who was from a different faction. So Oboi was like, I don't like this guy. I'm just going to remove him straight away. So he executed Suksaha first. Then that left him as the most powerful minister because Ebilun decided that Oboi was really powerful and he was like, alright, you're the boss. I'll follow you. So Kangxi... Even though he was very young, he's actually very, he was, he's a very intelligent person. And he realized really quickly that uh, this oh boy was not, was not a good egg. He was going to take over his throne. Kangxi was probably thinking about this uh, dilemma and was thinking, oh boy, oh boy. No pun intended. <laughs> so yeah, the initial plan was to wait till Kangxi was 16 when he came of age. And then they'd give him full autonomy to rule the country. But Kangxi was like, no, by the time I get to 16, they're probably already so powerful that I can't rule myself anyway. So he decided that instead of waiting till he was 16, he waited till he was only 15. And he was like, you know what? I've got the skills. I've got the maturity. I'm going to start early. So he took control of the throne early, which surprised everyone. And Oboil was probably thinking, wait, this wasn't part of the agenda. He was supposed to wait another year. I'm not ready yet. And then Kangxi used that surprise to his advantage and removed him by finding Oboi guilty of around 30 charges and had him arrested in the year 1669. And Oboi was probably thinking to himself, Ah, damn it, my plan didn't work. Oh boy, oh boy. Pun very intended. So, after that, with Oboi gone, there were no regents. Ebulun also submitted, so Kangxi now owned the joint by himself. He was the ultimate ruler. But as I said earlier, the Qing dynasty was still in its infancy stages, and it was not totally stable. China wasn't exactly the most safest of places. Yes, the preceding Ming dynasty was already gone, but there were Ming loyalists everywhere. For example, there was the kingdom of Tunning, T-U-N-G-N-I-N-G, in Taiwan. There was also the Southern Ming dynasty, which was created by Ming dynasty princes, and they established themselves in southern China, and, and they were still ruling parts of southern China at the time. So Kangxi was like, we need to finish off these people, we, we can't just let them run around. And you have to think at this time, the Qing dynasty, when they came into power, the Manchu people had only around 300,000, and yet they were ruling the Han Chinese of 100 million at the time. Yeah, the Han Chinese outnumbered the Manchu 300 to 1. But obviously because the Han Chinese outnumbered the Manchu 300 to 1, the Manchu rulers are always constantly worried about the Han Chinese rising up and removing them from power. So initially, a policy that the Manchu rulers initiated when they had conquered China was a policy called Yi Han Zhi Han, which means in English, let the Han Chinese govern the Han Chinese. By doing so, the commoners would probably feel like, oh, my own people are ruling me, so I feel a bit more comfortable rather than a foreigner ruling me. And obviously the Han Chinese people ruling them were under control by the ruling Manchus. 
So to do that, the Manchu rulers had instilled three former Ming Dynasty generals to rule large parts of southern China. The same Ming Dynasty generals who betrayed their own country and defected to the Qing Empire. These three people were Wu Sangui, W U S A N G U I, Shang Kexi, S H A N G K E X I, and Geng Zhongming, spelt G E N G Z H O N G M I N G. So in the year 1665, the Qing government gave these three people the titles of princes, and the three of them were granted large territories to rule on behalf of the Qing government. And these three princes, they had a lot of power. So for example, the largest of them, Wu Sangui, had a lot of power. He had the power to govern the local civilians, and also had control of local armies, so he could raise his own army, which I think is really dangerous for the Kangxi Emperor. And you know what? I was right. Kangxi knew that these three feudatories, as they called it, were a concern, and he decided after a while to try and reduce their power, fearing that they would rebel. So Kangxi began with Wu Sangui first, the largest of the three feudatories, and he ordered Wu Sangui to dissolve his fiefdom and retire out into the countryside. Wu Sangui was like, wait, you want me to retire? And he was full triggered, and he was like, he's trying to take away my power, that's it, I'm going to rebel. So Wu Sangui revolted and declared himself an emperor in 1673. In the following year, the other two feudatories, led by Shang Zhixin, Shang Kexi's son, and Geng Jingzhong, the grandson of Geng Zhongming, also joined the rebellion. So this rebellion was also known as the Revolt of the Three Feudatories, and in Chinese it's known as San Fan Zhiluan. The rebellion was initially successful, because all three feudatories had their own armies, they quickly controlled all of southern China and 11 of its provinces. But Kangxi struck back, and instead of going after all of them, he focused his army on each of the rebel leaders at the time, knowing that even though the three feudatories were technically together, in reality, they were all still looking out for themselves, so he knew that by attacking them one by one, he wouldn't have as much fear of being stabbed in the back. And it also helped Kangxi that Wu Sangui died of illness in the year 1678, and his grandson who took over was nowhere as good as his grandpa. And so by doing so, Kangxi was able to defeat the three feudatories by the year 1681 and quashed the rebellion. In 1683, he also attacked the kingdom of Tunning, the kingdom in Taiwan, and defeated them, taking control of the island. This is another topic that I want to cover, but I won't have enough time to do it this episode, so I'll cover this campaign of Taiwan in another time. With the defeat of Taiwan and the three feudatories, the Ming loyalists were completely defeated, and Kangxi took control of all of China. But there were still a lot of problems with his other neighbours. For example, uh, Spasiba? Did you say Russia? Harasho? Yes, let's talk about Russia and how he dealt with them. From the mid-1600s, the Russians had been expanding aggressively into Siberia, and by then had entered northeastern China, courtesy of the Cossacks. In the year 1665, the Russians had invaded and occupied large parts of northeast China close to the Amur River, Amur spelt A-M-U-R, 
It's better known in Chinese as Heilongjiang. And the Russians established a stronghold at a place called Albazino, spelt A-L-B-A-Z-I-N-O. Initially, because the Qing dynasty was focused on the three feudatories and the kingdom of Tunning and the other Ming loyalists in southern China, they didn't have time and ignored the Russians. So the Russians used that opportunity to start expanding further and further into northeast China. So by the time Kangxi sorted out his problem with southern China, he was like, oh jeez, there's more trouble up in the north? So now Kangxi had to focus his mind and try and defeat the Russians in the northeast. In the year 1685, Kangxi amassed over 3,000 men and 100 ships and attacked the Russians at Albazino, defeating them. The Russians, however, didn't want to give up on China and came back. And the Qing government had to send another army in the following year in 1686, and they defeated the Russians again. Now the Russians are like, alright, we give up, you guys are too strong, we're not going to expand into your territory anymore. Both the Qing and the Russians agreed to talk, and the Treaty of Nerchinsk was drafted. Nerchinsk, spelt N-E-R-C-H-I-N-S-K. This treaty stopped the conflict between Russia and China, drew a boundary which gave China back all of their land taken by the Russians, and also opened up trade between both countries, normalising both countries' relations. Now, Russia was sorted. So now Kangxi has united China, he's settled southern China, he's defeated the Russians, he can get some rest now, right? No, he can't. Why? Because the Mongolians are now coming onto him. Because he was worrying about the rebellions and conflicts in southern China, he actually forgot that the greatest threat were actually the Mongols, who were to the north of Qing Dynasty China. Now, you're all thinking the Mongols were strong, right? I mean, back in the day, like the great Genghis Khan defeated all of the Middle East, Eastern Europe, all of China as well, created one of the biggest empires in the world. It's fully strong, right? Well, that was in the 13th century. But by the 17th century, the world of the Mongols was a lot different, a lot complicated, and certainly not as dominant as Genghis Khan before them. You see, during the 17th century, the Mongols were now split into many different tribes, many different groups, and was not unified as a single nation-state or empire. To make it easier to understand, there were three large groups of Mongols, broadly classified. They were the Northern Mongols, the Southern Mongols, and the Western Mongols. The Southern Mongols were the Mongols south of the Gobi Desert, Gobi spelt G-O-B-I, and they were the first to ally themselves with the Qing government. The Northern Mongols, which were the Mongols north of the Gobi Desert, were mainly consisted of the Khalkha Mongols, Khalkha spelt K-H-A-L-K-A, and they were the biggest group of Mongols within the Northern Mongols. And then lastly, you have the Western Mongols, and they were the Mongols west of the Gobi Desert, and the furthest away from China. And the largest group in the Western Mongols, well, they were a tribe called the Oryats, spelt O-I-R-A-T. All of these Mongols had established a cordial if not slightly tense relationship with the Qing government during Kangxi's early rule in the mid-17th century. 
Basically, all of the Mongol tribes would pay tribute to the Qing dynasty every so often, but deep down they still harboured some resentment to the Qing government and, and wanted to defeat them and take over China. Out of all those Mongols, the Oryats were the most hostile towards China and the Qing government. And in the year 1634, things levelled up a little bit when Erdeni Batur established the Dzungar Khaganate. Dzungar spelt D-Z-U-N-G-A-R. For those of you who don't know what a Khaganate is, it's an empire ruled by a Khan. The Dzungar Khaganate united all the Oryat tribes, which greatly expanded their territory west of China at the time. So to give you all a bit of a bearing, the Dzungar Khaganate is around the present-day Xinjiang Autonomous Region in northwest China, which is a large swath of land. Erdeni Batur's son, Galdan Khan, Galdan spelt G-A-L-D-A-N, he was more ambitious than his father, and he wanted to create a Khaganate that would be as great as the mighty Genghis Khan. So after Galdan Khan took over, in the year 1688, he made his move on the northern Mongols, the Khalkha, and invaded them. How? He used the death of his brother at the hands of the Khalkha as an excuse. He defeated the Khalkha Mongols, and when they were defeated, the Khalkha defected to the Qing for protection. So now the southern Mongols have allied with the Qing dynasty, and now the northern Mongols have allied with the Qing dynasty as well. That left the Oryats, the western Mongols, left to defeat. But Galdan Khan was like, we'll bloody invade you first, and so they invaded Qing China first. Kangxi was like, oh, another war? Okay, we'll have to defeat the Mongols as well. So in response, Kangxi led his army north to attack Galdan Khan and defeated the Mongols in the year 1690. Kangxi's army is bloody formidable. He just, I don't even know how he does it. He just goes and he just, just defeats them. It seems like none of the enemies are any match for him. A lot of the Mongols died, but Galdan Khan escaped. And he wasn't ready to give up though. He spent years after 1690 rebuilding his army with the goal of eventually invading and taking over China. The Kangxi Emperor wasn't stupid though, and he realised that he had to destroy Galdan once and for all because he knew that he was trying to build up his army. So in the year 1696, he led another massive expedition to attack Galdan. This time, the Qing army decisively defeated the Mongols at the Battle of Jiao Modo, spelt J-A-O-M-O-D-O. Apologies if I'm not pronouncing these words correctly. The battle was fought near the present-day city of Ulaanbaatar. Ulaanbaatar is the capital city of Mongolia. This battle was so decisively won that all of the Mongols pretty much died in this battle, including Galdan Khan's wife, who had also joined in to fight. What about Galdan Khan? Well, he actually escaped again, but it wasn't to be for him, because in the year 1697, a year later, faced with pursuing Qing soldiers, he committed suicide with poison. Galdan Khan is often seen by historians as the last great Mongolian Khan in history, and after him, the Mongols have never really put up a, a strong military threat to any other countries. By defeating the Dzungars and Galdan Khan, Kangxi was able to absorb all of Outer Mongolia into the Qing dynasty, ending the last great Mongolian threat to China until the present day. I just think it's crazy how Mongolians and the other nomadic peoples have been a source of pain for China 
for thousands of years, and it was Kangxi that ended that threat pretty much once and for all. I mean, there were threats after that, but they weren't nearly as big anymore. So this is probably one of Kangxi's greatest military achievements, the fact that it was able to decisively defeat Mongolia and reduce their power once and for all. Okay, so the Kangxi Emperor became emperor at the age of seven, defeated his regents who were much older than him at the age of 15, defeated the southern Chinese Ming loyalists, defeated the Russians, and defeated the Mongols. He was already setting himself up to becoming one of the greatest Chinese emperors of all time. But what was the Kangxi Emperor's reign like? What other problems would he have to face in his rule? Everyone, stay tuned for part two of the Kangxi Emperor. Bye for now.